0: You're listening to The Promise of Personalized Medicine, brought to you by Axis dx This is a show for the lab professionals and medical directors who bring forward novel diagnostic tests to advance modern medicine. Let's dive into the conversation. Joining the podcast
1: this afternoon, happy to have you. Thanks, Barry. So, As you know, the podcast is really focusing on personalized medicine and knowing you over the years, I know that you've done a lot of things for a lot of different groups, all centered around personalized medicine. So that's why I'm really looking forward to hearing your perspective. So let's just start with define personalized medicine for us.
2: Sure. Yeah. I mean, well, the way I think of it is it's the opposite of population medicine. Population medicine is what we know works across a similar group of people although not everyone will benefit from that medicine or intervention personalized medicine is really the opposite of that it's identifying things that are specific to the individuals either based on their you know their dna or other criteria that really helps us identify which intervention is most likely to be beneficial and eliminating you know the morbidity and the toxicity associated with therapies and other interventions, could be surgery, could be other uh, types of things, um, because we know that they're unlikely to be beneficial. So at the end of the day, that's it. It's it's the right drug or right intervention for the right individual.
1: Yeah, that's great. Unlike population health or population where you're looking at the masses, you're just taking a look at the individual. So to that end, in the last 10 years, what would you say are some of the advancements that you've seen that have really helped us With advancing personalized medicine,
2: I mean the diagnostics, right? I think are are probably what's really helped to personalize interventions in the last decade. I mean, it's really what motivated me to get into the diagnostic space was having the experience of working in more population medicine setting where the realities were that only a handful of patients were benefiting from whether it's therapeutics or other uh, interventions, and knowing that most were not and then coming across the diagnostics industry and seeing how tailored those things could be and and really about eliminating those morbidities. I think in the last decade, it's been uh, next generation sequencing. For me, that's the thing that's really stood out as accelerating diagnostics. 15, oh goodness, going on 20 years ago, it was very sort of fixed, tailored uh, diagnostic interventions, not as broad, not as many targets, so less personalized, but really the beginning of that whole process. And now, two decades later, even we have so many more targets and we're able to, to personalize even more than we were, you know, 10 or 20 years ago.
1: And next generation sequencing really has been. Enabled us to do a lot of things where before that we just couldn't do it, and I, I agree with you. Well, it's
2: truly personalized. That's right. You know, I mean, it's it. We're getting to the the space where we can identify for the individual. So now we're talking about diagnostics that are customized to each individual because it's the right thing to be tra- tracing for them. So it may not be the right information for other individuals, but because of this technology, because of the ability to to sequence at those depths and across the entire genome or exome, we're able to really tailor the diagnostics to individuals to understand what's going on with disease or interventions.
1: Hmm. I mean, you've said individualized a couple of times. So if you think of like individualized care, I mean, maybe that is a better description of what we're trying to do in diagnostics, right?
2: For sure. I mean, I, I think I'll give a, a good anecdotal illustration and having been in diagnostics for almost two decades now. and what really motivated me was we know that from a population standpoint, chemotherapy in breast cancer is is beneficial. We know that it helps individuals. but the early chemotherapies helped four or five patients out of a 100 patients. and yet there was no way of really tailoring who those four or five patients were going to be. and so you treated the 100 patients rightfully to to benefit the 4 or 5 because in the absence of that they were likely going to progress and yet now we can really tailor it much more to the 4 or 5 I mean, at least eliminating a significant percentage of the population that that doesn't need the chemotherapy or could benefit with other interventions and so i think that's the personalized piece right it's it's really being able to eliminate the risks associated with interventions and therapies. And because they're real, you know, they they made sense when we didn't have better options, but now we have better options. If you, can, if you can identify someone who's not likely to benefit from something, then they probably shouldn't get that. But at the same time, if you can identify patients where the risk of receiving that is completely outweighed by the benefit, then absolutely they should get it. And that's personalized, right? That's being able to say, this is likely to work for you. We think you should take it. This is unlikely to work for you, and so therefore you shouldn't take it. And it could have been traditionally the same thing, or thought of as, as very similar, especially in oncology. That's a place where it's really taken off is diagnostics, personalized medicine.
1: Yeah, because I, I always like to say the most costly drug out there is the one that doesn't work.
2: Absolutely, it's not even <laughs> it's not even that it doesn't work. That if if there's no benefit, then you pay for the cost and then there are consequences of those drugs you know there are significant side effects and so it's not only that it doesn't work in the sense that it doesn't reduce the risk it also adds toxicity and costs that should be eliminated yeah and if you could identify that safely and with good consistency that yeah you you should not 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 just Consider, but this shouldn't be provided.
1: When you think about the evolution of personalized medicine and the role that diagnostics has played and continues to play, are there certain things that are holding up our ability to move it forward even quicker?
2: Yeah, I think the biggest challenges are uh, <laughs> the predictable and equitable reimbursement piece of it. But I think with the science is there. I mean, the technology and the ability of individuals to to create new platforms and generate new new tests that have value is not the hard part. That's actually not the that's not the th- limiting factor. limiting factor is actually another step higher and that's in the investment in those companies uh, because investors want to know that there's some predictable pathway to to recouping those investments and that those services are likely, to eventually become sustainable products or the or the companies are sustainable companies. And so, you know, I think that's probably the biggest thing. It's it's a real challenge. You know, it's it's not like the drug world where you have the FDA sort of gold standard seal of approval. And you know that if you can get through that process and you get that coverage, then then that's a predictable outcome. Right. You that that's much more predictable. Whereas on the diagnostic side, it's you know, I always joke around that it's If you've seen one payer, you've seen one payer, right? So it's every one you've got to go. Um, And so there's there's a lack of predictability and there's a lack of reassurance. And so it just delays the investment, the sustained investment, uh, or at least makes it more challenging.
1: I mean, that makes sense because as an investor, they are looking for to mitigate the risk and predictability, like you said. So with a drug, with FDA, there's a clear pathway to reimbursement coverage once you go down that path. Mm-hmm. And with diagnostics, it seems like we've struggled with that clear pathway to sustainability, if you will.
2: Yeah. I mean, if there was a uniform process, and I think that's, that's the difference, right? With With drugs, at least there's a pathway that people understand this is the pathway. These are the things you need to do And if you do those successfully, then this is the outcome. There's a lot more ambiguity with diagnostics because you could do all those things and it's still not clear. Okay, what's the outcome? What's how is that going to be? How's it going to be covered? How's it going to be priced? How is that going to scale across the industry?
0: Once a quarter, AccessDX gathers a group of medical directors to advise laboratory innovators and to stay current on the ever evolving trends and medical advancements. We'd love to partner with more medical directors so that you can help influence the next generation of modern medicine. If you're interested, please send a quick email to info at accessdx.com and connect with us on LinkedIn at linkedin.com slash company slash accessdx. And now back to the podcast.
1: So Matt, we were talking about personalized medicine and the FDA and kind of a clear pathway for drugs. I don't know why, but we've struggled in diagnostics in which there really is not a pathway like drugs has, at least in my opinion, right? Because when people say, well, I'm just going to get FDA approval for a, a you kit, know, a kit," I'm like, well, no one cares. Payers don't care about that. My opinion is that it seems like there's, yes, of course, clinical utility, but then it's defined clinical utility for that test. And it's not the same. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, tell me about that pathway, the struggle, if you will. Well,
2: yeah, I mean, and it's it's it means different things to different payers. That's that's the that's the biggest challenge. And again, that you have to go from payer to payer and make that argument. Whereas with the FDA uh, on the drug side, you make the argument. Maybe the bar is higher. I'm not sure that that that's necessarily the case, but you have a group of experts who are basically making that determination. For everyone, right? If they if they review the data and it's deemed to be appropriate, then you get that you know, seal of approval, literally. And and in diagnostics, you don't have that. And so in some cases, you you can go to payers and make the case successfully that you have the data and that the data that they're looking for meets the criteria, and then you can have the same conversation about the same data with someone else and doesn't meet the criteria. It's it makes it very challenging I think for for organizations to and especially investors to prepare for that because it's it's hard to predict what that road's going to be, you know? You get a you get a test on the market and you don't know is it going to be 2 years that we're going to have coverage or is it going to be 10 years before we have broad coverage and 90% of our of the services are being covered in that intended use. So I think that's probably the biggest challenge for the diagnostics industry and in really realizing the the potential of personalized medicine because it the drugs and the diagnostics go hand in hand. You can't have personalized medicine without the diagnostics. The diagnostics are ones that tell you which drugs are most appropriate. And so You know, those two things go hand in hand, but the pathways are very different.
1: Yeah. And since the pathways are different and the economics behind the two are different too, I can tell you, it's not going to be less than two years before widespread coverage and hopefully less than seven, right? Yeah. But therein lies, it's like, okay, is it between two to seven? Like, well, that's a big difference. And what does my payer mix look like too? I mean, if if you're heavy Medicare and you can get the Medicare, Medicare has seemed over the last decade. To be the early adopter for these types of tests
2: well, and they also have the most sort of predictable pathway right I mean that's that's part of the reason, although Medicare is is really kind of a a number of different entities it's not one thing it's really a bunch of different parties, and we don't have to go into max and, uh, and different different methodologies, but we do know that there is there's certainly a pathway that's relatively predictable you can understand what's required, you can create data and speak to data in a way that meets the requirements. And so I do think that's partly why they're the early adopters. They are, but it doesn't it doesn't apply to anybody else, right? I mean, what Medicare does is not relevant. Um, it's sort of like an FDA clearance is not relevant either. Or even for that case, that matter, FDA approval of diagnostics doesn't have the teeth of like an FDA approval of a drug. Because we've seen that where tests have get, gotten an FDA approval Intentionally making that distinction between clearance and approval, and then gone to payers, and the payers say, "Well, you still don't have the data to, to cover it." You know, that's I think the biggest challenge from a from a business standpoint, for sure, is is that piece of it. You can do everything else uh, well, and you can be operationally efficient and execute, and not deliver on that piece.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, you've talked about length of time for adoption, and even the unknowns that investors have to deal with in the diagnostic community. What are some mistakes that you've seen over the years that companies have made when launching a new novel diagnostic test?
2: The biggest mistakes are, the first one is just underestimating how challenging it's going to be. A lot of times developers get really excited about their technology and their their value and the report, and that's not really the product. And so I think that's that's a big piece of it is just underestimating how challenging it's going to be and i think if people organizations were more tuned into those challenges from the beginning they would be able to predict the resources required and do the things from the beginning that are going to accelerate that path to reimbursement and so you know maybe it's more money up front but you can justify that because it's going to Deliver reimbursement, you know, and maybe it's in it's in three years instead of seven years, and that's a huge payoff, but it takes more money up front. Um, so I think that's probably the biggest thing is just underestimating how challenging it's going to be, and that really ties into the the second thing, which is investing in the payer customer. I always talk about the three customers, right? Are the the patient who's the end user, right? They're the ones who are going to benefit from the services. The physician who's ordering the services. I find that organizations focus almost exclusively on those two customers. And that makes a lot of sense because at the end of the day, those are the people who are ordering the test. But it, the reality is they're not paying for the test. The The person that's paying for it ultimately are the payers and understanding and planning for what's required so that you are accelerating that timeline, right? Again, going from seven to three is a massive or even cutting in half, you know, Three and a half, four years, sh- huge return on investment. But it's hard to make that case, right? If people don't appreciate how uh, how challenging that part of the business is going to be, then it's easy to say, I don't want to spend that money up front because I think I can do it without it. And I think th- we've been doing this long enough to know that you can't, that you just you can't get away. There's no shortcutting the system. Um, so maybe that's the biggest takeaway is that there's no shortcutting the system. You have to invest in your data. At the end of the day, your product is your data. I mean, and it's, it's not the report, it's not the rec, it is the data that supports the utility of the information that's provided. And so that data better be strong because it, when you when you go to have the conversation, that's the thing that's going to motivate people. So that's two, you said three, right? Third one, yeah, I would say being on the, the market access and reimbursement side, the biggest challenge... Or one very significant challenge is the operational efficiency. That piece is probably overlooked, right? Because you're so focused on developing data. You're so focused on getting reimbursed. You're so focused on selling tests. But if you get all that stuff done, you get people using the test, you get the test covered, you get it reimbursed at a good rate, but you're not good at at the other piece, which is actually the claims process and managing all the requirements with, with payers, then you can see a, a real delusion of those efforts. And so I think that's another piece that that people have to understand uh, and invest in.
1: Yeah. I mean, if companies just invested half the amount of money as they do with the physicians who are ordering the test into everything that you just talked about, the ROI is definitely there. And I guess we just have to do a better job with giving case studies to that effect, right? So that when, you know, senior management is saying, okay, well, what's my budget for those types of activities from day one, right? Because to your point, Matt, okay, so if average, it's seven years, let's say if I can reduce that to three and a half years of coverage, and we'll define coverage as X amount of covered lives, whatever, right? Mm -hmm. X dollars. Well, if we could demonstrate that a little bit better, as well, like, okay, you know what, I am going to invest $10 million dollars for the next 3 years to do make sure that happens right yeah then i think we'll have a better case
2: well and the challenge too is it's in the selling and i always air quotes there's a lot of emphasis because it is a, it can be an arms game and so there's this there's this fear of losing sort of the the share of voice in the market but what you end up doing is you invest in utilization that's not reimbursable so it's a double edged sword because you at the same time you're spending money to motivate folks to to go out and get those sales you're also not getting reimbursed for those sales and so it's a real it's a real kick it's definitely a challenging conversation but it's one that that folks need to to consider and and spend a lot of time planning on right is it some balance is it some reallocation or as long as you're spending the time and the money on the right things and the sales are less of a concern because you know that's going to pay off eventually but a lot of times people get focused on sales and, you know, we're going to sell a lot of tests, but you're not selling until you're getting paid. It's compounding.
1: And, And spending the time and effort and money on the right things is key, right? With any organization, but especially a small company that's coming out with these new tests. To that end, how do you think we could do a better job as an industry working with those payers?
2: There are a lot of things we can do to work better with the payers. Um, let's see, what's the what was the top thing we can do? Part of it is giving them what they want, right? I mean, that's that's a big thing. I think that if we listen, if we actually listen better, then they'll tell us what they're looking for. I certainly know of cases where you know we've asked pointed questions and gotten pretty clear responses on, hey, this is what would this is what we would be looking for, and then upon delivering that, the outcome that we were looking for is is realized. And so. I think that's probably the biggest thing, listening and then providing things that are of value. I think it still goes back to that data, that piece of it. That's what we can probably do the best. I don't think payers are resistant to personalized medicine necessarily. They just want to know that it's worth the investment, that if they're going to cover those things, that they ultimately are going to improve outcomes, right? That's the piece that they're looking for. And again, that goes back to the data. Show me the data. Don't just tell me it's going to improve outcomes. It's not enough for you to think that they're going to, you know, hypothetically, the data is what supports that. And I think there's surrogates that we can, we can point to that demonstrate that. But ultimately, we have got to be able to answer that question.
1: Yeah. And whether it's a direct correlation or using those surrogates, right, to make sure that the payers are in agreement with, yes, if you show me this, then that would be, constitute, quote, good data for me and I could move
2: forward. I think that's the biggest resistance we get, right? Is like they know we want to get paid for our services, but they want to know, are those services beneficial or are they just an additional cost and things are going to happen as they were going to happen regardless and the outcomes are going to be the same. And so that's, they're not willing to take a leap of faith. They, they want to see some, some hard evidence and that's the biggest the biggest challenge. Yeah, I think that's what we could do the best, right? I mean, I think if we wanted to accelerate that timeline, certainly the things I focus on. If we want to accelerate timelines, those are the things that that really help change. And in addition, they help drive the community to want to use those services as well. So the data is twofold. It demonstrates the value of the test, which helps develop utilization and advocates who can get behind and also support the request for coverage. And
1: sometimes it seems like there are two different value propositions, if you will. Ordering physicians see the value of this test being ABC, whereas from a health plan perspective, that value proposition is probably not ABC. It's probably something totally different. And so you have to answer both sets, right?
2: Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, I mean, a lot of times might be for emotional reasons, you know, or to help clarify a, a treatment decision. But if that decision was going to be made regardless, then did that add any value? And if that's how it's being used, then it's unlikely to get the support for coverage. So yeah, I think they're, they're different propositions. The one for the provider uh, that's using it, the patient, right? So the the information that's available to the patient might have different value than that of the payer. And again, I think that's why you have to consider all three customers. You can't just, you can't tailor your data or your messaging for any one single group at the expense of the others. That's right. And
1: that payer customer, if you will, when you look for the next 10 years, <laughs> what do you think they're looking for Or are they looking to us in regards to personalized medicine? What do you think they're looking for?
2: Uh, That's a good question. I don't know if they're—I don't know that they're actively looking. I think they're—they're certainly well aware of the industry and they are abreast of the developments. I don't get the sense that there's active like programs. You know, and insurers get a—they get a bad rap. A lot of times, but there's so much going on, right? I mean, there's you're trying to manage so many members and so many different disease states and so many different interventions, and so it's very easy to take a conservative position on that and say, like, well, okay, we're not gonna we're not gonna make any changes because we don't know what those changes are gonna impact. Part of the challenge too is just the level of attention that a lot of these things rise to, especially small diagnostics, you know, novel things, and relatively small populations. They don't rise to the level of actively being managed, especially when you compare them to some of the major morbidities like heart disease or kidney disease, these things that are that are massive. Right. And so while some of these diagnostics may save significant sums of money, they may not be significant to the bottom line of the payer. So it's not like they're engaged necessarily. So I think that's part of it is just understanding what is of interest, you know, what programs the payers are focused on and, uh, and looking for tools. They are, they certainly have, you know, interventional programs. My experience is that they're generally focused on much larger issues than, than the types of things that these diagnostics are addressing. Even in cancer, because cancer is such a big thing, it's not one thing, it's all these different tumor types, and, and each of those has a different sort of treatment paradigm. It's not like they manage that as one thing. It's, you know, multitude. You know, I think it's hard. I'm not I'm not sure there's and there's probably if there are there's probably only a handful that are actually, you know, engaged in looking at it seems because they have the resources to do it and they have the personnel and sophistication to be experts and, and know what's good and what's not good. I think most don't have that because. Because of their size. You know, they they're just not staffed like that.
1: Yeah. Now you started our conversation by saying, Hey, you know what? Personalized medicine is unlike population health. And what I just heard you conclude is saying, you know what? In order for personalized medicine to gain the attention from a payer customer, it better be big enough. <laughs> from a population standpoint from a membership standpoint to get their attention because if if not it's just another hill that you're going to have to climb
2: yeah you know it's and it goes back to that that conundrum of of driving sales over you know spending resources in other areas if you don't have sales if you don't have any impact then there's not going to be any interest that's one of the the key things is it's got to be on the radar And so you it's it's cart before the horse and you almost have to be uh, working on both simultaneously simultaneously. So it it just makes it that much more challenging. It's it's very challenging. It's one of the things I love about it. Honestly, it's uh, because it is it is not straightforward. It's not a plug and play. Every conversation is is nuanced and payers are looking for different things sometimes. But that's what makes it at the end of the day fun. That's great. Some people might not describe it as fun, but. uh... (laughs) Yeah,
1: that's great, man. Thank you so much again for just sharing some of your insights this afternoon. I really appreciate it.
2: Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me, Terry.
0: You've been listening to The Promise of Personalized Medicine, produced by Amplify Podcasts and original music by Jake Demas. To ensure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show and your favorite podcast player. And if you like what you've heard, we'd love to hear from you with a rating or a review. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.